Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Kelly Capick. Kelly is a professor of theological studies at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. He is the author of several books, including most recently, Embodied Hope, a Theological Meditation on Pain and Suffering, which is what our conversation today is about. And it was a really interesting one. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Kelly Cape. Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. So Nietzsche says that all philosophy is the personal confession of the philosopher. And <laughs> you've written a book, which a, a really profound book on human suffering. And you pretty much acknowledged this in the beginning, right? That, that you, don't, you don't keep your cards close to your chest mm. in the way your struggle, especially in your wife's pain and struggle with cancer, and then with another rare disorder, how that has shaped your own reflections, right? Yep. Can, yeah, could you say a little bit about about her, her story? Yeah, it's a, it's up to you. We can jump to her story, um, but it's worth teasing out the connection between the theology and the and the reflection because I do think, since you mentioned it, I do think all theology is personal, and so that's that's not just when you're talking about suffering, but the whole thing. Um, but if you want, I can give your listeners just a little bit of the story if that would if yeah, that would prove yeah, helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my wife and I, the, in about a week, celebrate our 24th, uh, wedding anniversary. Um, but in, thank you. Um, but in 2008, uh, she was diagnosed with a form of breast cancer, uh, which was really a, a strange form. It, it's one that, um, normally women in their sixties or seventies get, so that itself was a difficult process. Uh, it was hard to figure out the diagnosis, actually. Um, praise God for a really good physician, because the early tests, the mammograms, everything was clear. And she kept saying, nope, there's something here. And it ended up when they eventually got to, I think, an MRI, the whole thing lit up. So anyway, she went through, uh, we went through surgeries. We, we had been married over nine years before we had kids. So we had two small kids still. And... Um, but anyway, so 2008, that summer, we went through various surgeries and um, over the next year eventually was declared cancer-free for which we were thankful and kind of thought that was the, that was the difficult part um, and thought, well, I really wish we didn't have to go through that, but thanks God for sustaining us through it. But unfortunately, in 2010, she called me from the side of the road and she had just been meeting with some pastors. She worked for a, a Swiss Christian. Christian uh, humanitarian organization called Medair, which itself is interesting. Uh, Christians from uh, international rather than American brings different perspectives. But anyway, so she was meeting with some pastors uh, to talk about the idea of church planning after a after the hurricane or after the um, earthquakes in Haiti, terrible earthquakes in 2010. And she called me from the side of the road after the meeting and said she was having trouble with a stick shift and didn't think she could get home. And she didn't know why her foot wasn't wasn't responding in her legs. And that, to skip a whole lot, was the very first day of what's become the rest of our lives. Um, she had pretty bad um, polyneuropathy, uh, pain in her various limbs. And we've spent the last seven years trying to figure out what was going on. And she ended up being diagnosed um, with 
erythromyalgia, which is called man on fire disease. And anyway, she has various things going on, but it's a, it's a daily difficulty. And those diagnoses are so awful because you live in the mystery of what it is. And then when you get a diagnosis of something that's not going to go away, mm. I mean, that, I mean, that can be so uh, just existentially crippling. I, I, I think the, the, the ambiguity that's always on the horizon. I do think it is. I think that being in that space is a very difficult one. I remember someone telling me as we were walking through this, his wife uh, about 30 years uh, before had had terrible chronic pain and they couldn't figure out what it was. And then years into it, a, a doctor sat her down and, and some test results finally showed something and said, he said, you have MS. And she smiled. And the doctor said, I, I don't think you understand what I just said. She said, no, I, I do. And I know that's terrible, but I finally have a diagnosis yeah, yeah. because part of the difficulty in all of this is psychological. Uh, you start to think you're crazy. Other people think you're crazy. Those kind of difficulties. Do you two have like a long list of, of unhelpful and stupid things religious people have said to you in the midst of the journey? <laughs> um, you know, a lot of people... And can, yeah. you name, can you name names with it? <laughs> I can name a few names, but you know what's interesting is almost all of them never mean to or meant to. And... Um, and many of them don't even know that they did that. Uh, but, but part of what I'm interested in is I, I actually think the church has gotten better about very difficult things like cancer. I, um, I think we're, we're, part of what I'm interested in is what, what about lasting difficulties? What about things that aren't answerable? What about chronic pain? That I think we struggle. We can handle a birth of a child. We bring meals. We do that kind of thing. We can handle cancer. But it's very difficult, and I'm sympathetic for the church. What, how are we supposed to think about people in pain all the time? Uh, and what does that look like? Yeah, I interviewed a couple last year whose son was diagnosed as a sociopath, I think it was. And mm. just, I mean, living with a debilitating mental illness that, you know, the justice system. Would give it. Yeah, I mean, those sorts of things, there's no answer, the messiness. And you're, you're pretty clear in the beginning of your book that you're, this is written from an unapologetically kind of Christian perspective. And yet anybody in suffering can can connect to it. Although, you know, you don't sort of... Yeah, I hope so. You're, you're writing from the place where you stand. And also you make it really clear you have no interest in defending God. Yeah. So did you, do you think that sometimes theodicy actually, you know, attempts to sort of justify God or defend God actually create more evil by trying to explain the unexplainable? I, I do, actually. I mean, when you ask me, is there a list of things that can say, you know, I'm actually pretty patient with a lot of laity. Is there Because most of the time when people say dumb things, they don't mean to. They're trying to meet you in the moment. Um, but I do think I react against some of the problem that we as Christian academics and pastors cultivate. And it, it's more along what you're saying, where we try and provide a, the, a theodicy. We may not even know what the word theodicy is, but we try and defend God. And so we try and explain things. And that I find I've actually grown very impatient with that. I, I think it's fine as a philosophical discussion in a classroom. I actually think it's a necessary, interesting thing, but that I don't think it really has almost any place when you're actually dealing with people suffering, if that yeah, makes yeah, any yeah, sense. Yeah, you quote Alvin Planiga, the great philosopher, mm. and you say that Planiga says, it, it, you say this can sound kind of funny, but I think it's right, that, that evil isn't so much a logical problem for someone who believes in God, in the traditional kind of God that the Bible bears witness to. It's an existential problem. Yeah, yeah, it's a pastoral problem. 
And that's one of the things I'm very interested. So I, I'm very clear. I, this is not a theodicy in, in any of the kind of traditional ways people might think about it. One of the main things I'm really interested in is not the question of if God exists. I actually think that's kinderspiel. That's child's play. <laughs> that's not hard. I, and if, you know, if I'm talking to an atheist, I would want to be more gracious about it. I, I don't mean it condescending like it just sounded, but I just actually don't think the question of does a deity exist just look historically, globally. Let's just go ahead and say yes. <laughs> we haven't gotten anywhere, though. But I actually think the really difficult question, particularly for Christians, is not does God exist, but is he good? I think that's a brutal question and far more difficult. Yeah, and you you talk in the book, you mentioned how S- Simone Weil said that in suffering, that we got to pay attention that, that there's physical dimensions, psychological and social dimensions all bound up. And she says, right, that it's solidarity. Uh, we need to think about solidarity uh, with the sufferer to avoid the crippling things of isolation and despair. Mm, yeah. Can you, yeah. Can you, can you uh, unpack that? Is that part of, it seems like part of what you're trying to do in the book is make sure that we have a full picture of the nature of human suffering, yep. not a reductive one. I'm very interested in that. I, I'm. That's where the title of the book comes from, Embodied Hope. I'm really interested in embodiment. And um, and there's really three parts to that to try and be more holistic. Embodiment is is about us. That's why there's it's strange, but there's a chapter in there where I talk about why bodies are good, right? Yeah, why they yeah. matter. Because it is easy in the midst of suffering to think my body is the fundamental problem. Right. So I, but, but also there are different Christian groups that kind of struggle because they so spiritualize things that they act like the body doesn't matter. And, and that's a deep problem. So I want to say, listen, our bodies, which include minds, wills, affections, and, and our physicality, all of that needs to be holistic. But then that takes me to the importance of Jesus, the son of God, taking on a real body, real flesh and blood. And, and to unpack that, and I, I am I am a Protestant. I grew up Roman Catholic, and I've become Protestant. Um, I'm Reformed from the Reformed tradition, and so I say this as a criticism of of my own tradition. But I think we can be so focused on the cross, which is absolutely essential, that we can lose the wonder of the very fact of incarnation—that the Son of God becomes human. Um, and then the third part of embodiment, so it's us holistically, Jesus more holistically, and then the church as the embodiment of, of God, uh, of Christ in the world. And, and so what does it look like for us to be the, the body of Christ to those in need? Do you think, so like, you know, Martin Luther famously talked about the contrast between a sort of theology of glory mm. versus a theology of the cross. And, you know, with the th- theology of glory sort of b- builds on human reason and mm. sort of human, uh, you know, hubris. Do you think in a lot of reform circles, as much as there's talk about the cross, it's a theology not of the cross, but about the cross, which actually winds up becoming a theology of glory? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that very well could be. Um, let, let me come at it in a slightly different way, um, because I actually think this that, that can happen where people are talking about the cross rather than, than the experience. But, but I want to give some credit there. I actually think the bigger problem in reform circles— um, is a misunderstanding of divine sovereignty. So in this book, part of what I'm reacting against are two audiences I have in mind. On the one hand is kind of pop evangelicalism. Everything's fine, or it's going to get better. God's good all the time. All the time he's good. And by that, they mean 
you should be happy all the time. That's a problem and I'm reacting as that. But on the other hand, I'm also reacting against some in my own tradition who have, who have understood that God is sovereign from the scriptures, but then misunderstood what that means and have used sovereignty to flatten out everything else. Does yeah, that make you, any you, sense? Yeah, yeah, and you wind up actually almost becoming, you almost deny evil because you make, you identify it so much with God. You talk about, That's exactly you, right. You talk about B.B. Warfield's portrait of Jesus mm. in the Gospels and him really being opposed and moved by evil. Right. And suffering, and if, if if it's all kind of just out of the hand, of, coming directly from the hand of God, there's you almost you you almost call evil good. I mean, right, you're, you're caught there actually not being able to have a category for evil anymore. Right, and and you you always have this challenge in the Reformed tradition because the majority tradition, the very clear majority tradition, says unequivocally, God is not the author of evil. But every once in a while, even some significant names in the tradition have thought, I don't know, he's sovereign, let's just bite the bullet and say he is, thinking they're doing a good thing. <laughs> and they'll often take a few obscure verses, missing what's clear from Genesis through Revelation. There's all kinds of stuff that God says is evil and he's opposed to. And, and, and so trying to think through what does it mean that everything happens under his sovereignty, but not everything that happens does he say is good. And it's obvious when you say it that way, but it's amazing how we get it screwed up and how bad that affects our pastoral care. Yeah, you spend quite a lot of time in the book in a section on Athanasius, and you talk about mm. the significance of the incarnation, and you talk about it. Uh, one of the significance, one of its significant dimensions for him is it's revelatory. That, mm. that in God's own reconciling and recreating work, it also shows us um, the heart of God. P.T. Forsyth said, right, there's a cross at the heart of God, mm. that, that, that mm. the passion isn't plan B, it's plan A in some sense. Do you think that part of the problem in, the, in some of the circles is that their understanding of God is really not conditioned by the incarnation? Like, the really, there's a God behind the incarnation that's sort of the real th source of theology, and the incarnation is the rescue plan and, and that sort of stuff. But really, it, it, they don't, their, their understanding of God and conception of God isn't really that conditioned by the story and life of Jesus. Yeah, I mean, there's some tricky territory right there, to be honest, in terms of, of theology, because the majority of Orthodox tradition, not even just Protestant, tend to say the majority opinion would be the incarnation is in response to the fall rather than the incarnation is a necessary expression of this God. Now, that, <clears throat> that, that would take us into the weeds. Um, I have various struggles with, with both sides. I, I see some strengths and weaknesses, but I just want us to be a little careful where someone like Moltmann ends up having God being constituted as triune on the cross. Having said all of that, I absolutely agree with the spirit of what you're saying. When people talk about God, I want to know, tell me about Jesus. And <clears throat> here's a great test case. When people talk about the attributes of God, do they ever mention Jesus? <laughs> and it's amazing how often our treatments have not. And that is a big problem. Put it that way. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah. I think, you know, Colin Gutton p points this out. Right. And, and, and it, might, it might be his uh, the book, The One, The Three, and The Many. Or no, maybe mm. it's in his book on the divine attributes where he says that Charles Hodge can look at this definition of from Westminster, you know, God is uh, the omnis as the best definition of God ever written and can write hundreds of pages about God before he even gets to the Trinity. And so you have this conception of God that's really abstract. Uh, and yep. and it, it just doesn't, it's not where people live. Right. No. And 
uh, Gunton, Gunton was my PhD supervisor, and, and maybe that's part of my instinct there is Gunton was rightly concerned that you can have a God behind the gods. And so what's the real God is not the Father, Son, and Spirit, but something behind them. And I'm very interested to say, in light of the fall, if you, if you want to know what God is like, you have to look to Jesus. Well, l- let me let me just be clear and, and tie it all together. Um, Cause I think where people really care is the pastoral work. So this is to move from the lofty theological discussion, just to get to the ground here. Here's the question. When you meet someone who's suffering, when you meet someone who's been sexually abused, what do you say to that person? Do you basically say, well, God is sovereign and he did, you know, he did this. Basically you may not use the words, but it sounds like he did this to them. And so and the you sooner should, you swallow that, the better you're going to feel. Yeah, and and so you better just you, you you should just see this is a good thing. God's working all things for good, and He's using you know this is a good thing in your life. Um, no, no, no. You want to know what God thinks about you as, as someone who's been sexually abused? You want to know what He thinks about that? You have to look to a bleeding and dying Savior on a cross. That's what God thinks about that. He thinks it's wicked. He thinks it's terrible. And the way He's going to deal with it, though, is He enters into suffering in order to overcome it. Um, but He actually literally dies and suffers. But but the way even Timothy George talks about Luther and Calvin on this is great. He says, you know, they weren't interested in abstract discussions of the sovereignty of God and what God can and can't do. They concretize the sovereignty of God in terms of the personal work of Jesus. So if you want to know what God thinks about your suffering, look to Jesus. And that transforms your understanding of suffering, in my opinion. Yeah, and you, you quote in one of the ellipses of the chapter, you, you quote Bonhoeffer, only the suffering God can help. Right. It's interesting. I think in letters from papers from prison, he talks about the possibility of godlessness in the modern world. And, mm-hmm. and he says that, well, what would we expect? We'd expect a creator that allowed himself to be crucified outside the camp, be pushed out of the city to create the kind of creation where godlessness was possible. Yeah. I mean, as you likely know, that, that text in Bonhoeffer is pretty heavily debated because it gets used <laughs> everywhere from Robinson and his Honest to God book uh, to others. But I I think Bonhoeffer is absolutely right in this instinct. Um, Whether you need to question the impassibility of God, impassibility being the idea that God cannot suffer, that's a classic view. More recently, a lot of people have questioned that. Um, I do think you have to look at Jesus to understand what God thinks about your suffering. And the big surprise is the way God deals with suffering is by entering into it himself. And and on this, I'm actually fairly classic for this reason. I think it's more powerful to understand that God who knows everything, who knows everything, he knows what it's like to suffer because he can imagine anything. He's God, but he doesn't know what it means as a human. He knows it as God. So the only way God can know suffering as human is to become man, to become yeah. human. Yeah, it's interesting. I think Marilyn Adams said, um, mm. if you just had to look at creation and figure out, look at the the, the physical world and th- figure out what you can know about God, you definitely have to conclude that God likes diversity and fragility. 
Because mm, everything's so fragile. I mean, yeah. uh, it's, it's weird that part of, right, in some sense, part of God's plan for us is to be fragile. Yeah. And you talk about the importance of limitation and accepting creatureliness in the book, right? Right. I mean, I mean that's, it, but is it, it seems like everything in modern life is geared to suppress that sense, right? To make us seem a lot more durable than we are. And even where we, we sort of warehouse death. I mean, there's only certain places like hospitals or funeral, funeral, yeah. funeral parlors that we allow, we allow it to be kind of clinically exposed. I mean, we try to suppress creatureliness, it seems like every chance we can get. Oh, I, I absolutely agree with that. That's actually the book I'm working on right now um, is trying to deal with that very thing of finitude um, and misunderstandings we have about finitude. And I think we confuse finitude with sin, and that's a big problem. We need to actually be able to separate those out. Um, so yeah, that, that itself is, is another side to this whole thing. You introduced me in the book, too, to a term, I think, from Owen that I had not heard before that I found really interesting. You said that the biggest, for Christians, that one of the big struggles in times of suffering is thinking hard thoughts about mm-hmm. God. Can you, can you say, can you explain what Owen means there? Yeah, and what I'm trying to do with Owen there is basically to say, it's one thing, you know, Stephen Crane has this great short poem. He's the one who wrote Red Badge of Courage, but he also wrote these great poems, pretty raw, you know, and he said, a man said to the universe, sir, I exist. And the universe replied, the fact has not created in me a sense of obligation. And I, <laughs> I love that poem because it's very honest. It's, it's, and Nietzschean in his own way, he basically said, "There, the universe doesn't actually care." Now, so when you're going through suffering, that brings its own struggles, but you don't expect the universe to care. I actually think going through suffering as a Christian um, or as a Jew right, brings all kinds of problems because we don't think it's an abstract force. We think this is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when we're suffering, we actually struggle with what Owen calls hard thoughts, like. Well, maybe he's an angry God. Maybe he's a maybe he's a a cruel God. Maybe he just likes to play games. Maybe we're just a bunch of pawns in a chess set that he likes to knock around. All these kind of difficult thoughts about God. And that's really the heart of the book is me trying to say, why do we not think he's cruel? Why do we not think he's apathetic? And the answer to that, even though it sounds cliche, is Christ. But to really think about who Jesus is, his very incarnation, his enfleshment, his suffering, and then resurrection. Yeah, and, and you know, it's interesting too. You talk about how for pre-modern people, suffering and evil was just so it was more like a, a practical discipline, like an existential mm-hmm. thing. Like there was not, it, it, it didn't cause sort of intellectual problems per se in the same way. You see, in the modern period, right. that changes. You said yeah. it's we don't think of evil quite the same way, right? Yeah. We kind of imagine it's a, a, a it's funny, we, we think like Descartes was smarter than Augustine or something, you know, or uh, um, so, some people that were wrestling with these questions, Locke, and the, it's not that they were smarter. It's just that at, with the rise of modernity, the kind of question that you think is appropriate changes. And as confidence in the human intellect grows, that shapes the kind of question you think. Augustine was brilliant. The early church was brilliant, but they didn't think quest problem, the problem of evil was an intellectual one. They thought it was a problem of practices. In other words, they just knew there was evil in the world. So you don't spend your time trying to figure out 
where it came from and that kind of thing. They had they had basically what they thought were the answers to that. The church's response instead is a set of practices. We seek to take the abandoned children off the heaps of the trash heaps and bring them into our homes. We seek when a plague comes around, we seek to, you know, go care for people. That is the response to evil. Yeah, and, and you talk about the Lisburn earthquake a little bit. And mm-hmm. I think Susan Neiman in her book on evil talks about this, right? Where uh, it, because everybody got a picture of this tragic, awful picture of human suffering, they could get it so quickly. Uh, is that part of what changes the way we view evil and suffering? Like, it's it part of the scale of, of the way we experience it, you think? Well, uh, that may be. Um, I mean, it, it's definitely the case. The news any day is utterly depressing, right? Because now we have global news and people die every day, right? <laughs> and so that that may increase it. But I'm a little I'm a little skeptical about doing too much with that because the reality is we have modern medicine. We have all kinds of stuff. So in the third and fourth century, they weren't strangers to physical suffering. It was just assumed it was part of your life. And death came much earlier. So I'm not sure. I mean, a lot of studies say we actually have the greatest health, the longest, you know, life expectancy, and we think we're suffering the most. So th- these are kind of tricky questions historically. I mean, I wonder if we expect more out of life, too. Yes. Because, again, because of our advances in things like science, technology, and medicine, I wonder if our expectations are so much higher for I, suffering being prevented. Yeah, I think that's huge. But I, and I also think part of what's very interesting is with the technological advances, I think it's confusing our understanding of what it means to be human. So we have cell phones and we use them all day and we get really frustrated if the battery wears down early. But anyways, we plug it in and we expect it to work just fine the next day, that kind of thing. And it, it has it has all, my wife talks about, you know, there's an ethic to, uh, to having horse-drawn carriages because they can only go so fast. Yeah. <laughs> and airplanes, it's not that she's anti-technology, but airplanes go faster and it just continues to mess with our minds about productivity, about what we should expect from life. And it's the Wendell Berry in me says, this is a huge problem, much more than we realize how much it's affecting us. Yeah, Louis C.K. talks about being on the airplane and like, okay, we have wireless <laughs> yeah. on the airplane. And he's like, oh, this is so great. I could do YouTube, do this. And I say, oh, sorry, we're having a problem. Uh, it's not going to be working. for." And the guy next to him goes, this is bullshit. And he's like, no, here, something that this guy didn't even know was ha- was here a minute ago. Now yeah. it fails, so it's all bullshit now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and and just, yeah, I, I think so. Even things like... Uh, Sabbath and all of those things become interesting again. I think that's part of the Christian practice in the midst of suffering, in the midst of of kind of messed up views of what it means to be human. This is this is a countercultural idea. It's not about legalism. Let's move past that discussion. This is you want to know what it means to be Christian? We don't work seven days a week, <laughs> not because of legalism, <laughs> but because we're not we're not machines that just need to be. We need rest. We need rhythm. You talk about two in a chapter about the resurrection. I think you, you mm. talk about two different stories about mm. God's death and God's life. You t- you contrast Nietzsche's parable about the guy who comes into the village and says to everybody, "You know, God's dead, and you've killed him." And, mm. and the sort of reader response it, it evokes with the Gospel of Mark's vision mm. of the empty tomb and the fear. Mm. So, how are they? I mean, how 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 what? Why juxtapose those two pictures? Mm, great question. Um, 
to briefly remind your your listeners about the story, Nietzsche tells the story of this madman who comes to the village uh, with his lantern and he's screaming, you know, you know, where is God? Where is God? And everyone's laughing. All the villagers are laughing because they're 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 good, sophisticated, educated folk, and they know there's no God. So they kind of think he's funny, and he ends up saying, God is dead. You've killed him. Um, now, people hear that story, they know it, and they think Nietzsche's making fun of Christians. They haven't understood the story. Right, I mean, right. He's making yeah. fun of the people who, who have killed God, but still kind of, but haven't realized the implications exactly. of living in a godless world. Exactly. <laughs> they, kind of, they kept the sort of uh, conventions of, of a kind of Judeo-Christian bourgeois ethic without sort of, well, yeah, we just take the God out. <laughs> yeah. That, that, and, and Nietzsche's point is you're living on borrowed capital. So let's just bite the, let's just suck it up and, and realize we live in infinite darkness. And that's where Nietzsche's view of power and everything. And I actually think even though it was over 100 years ago, we're still living. Nietzsche's madman, as he says at the end, they're not ready. They, they can't face it. I still think that's happening for most non-Christians. But what's interesting is Nietzsche's trying to call people to be honest. Well, when you move to Mark, Mark's telling of the end of the gospel, Jesus's death. Mark ends with Jesus, a report about Jesus rising, but no one's seeing him. And the last words of Mark's gospel are, uh, they went away afraid. That's a, and now there's an extended end to Mark's gospel, but most scholars don't think that's, that's original. That's very interesting. I actually think Mark is doing something like Nietzsche's doing, but for very different reasons. Mark's actually saying, you as a reader have now read about Jesus. You've heard about his death. And the report is he's alive. What do you do? What do you think? And, and they're both calling for their, their, reader or audience to respond. And right, the implication is those women were afraid too, and they went and said uh, something. Like you're right. afraid, I know, maybe in the in the somewhere in the, some corner of the empire, but those early women were afraid too. Mm, that's uh, right. And they kind of, yeah. yeah that's that's heard, nice. I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's good. Have you ever uh, heard of the theologian Thomas Halik? Thomas Halik? He's a, he's a Czech uh, psychotherapist. He became a priest. Underground. Name sounds vaguely familiar, but I'm yeah, not sure. he's, I've been reading a lot lately. He's 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 he became a priest in an underground seminary. Like they're flying okay. in people like Walter Casper and Charles Taylor to teach these guys right. the secret. And and uh, he's written a couple of great books. In in a book called "I Want You to Be on the God of Love," he he quotes Nietzsche this way. And I was thinking of it as I was reading your book. He says, "God is dead." That sentence uttered that the end of the 19th century continued to fascinate for the next hundred years. Maybe it was not only a sentence about God and against God, but also one containing. Some something of God's message, message to us. Mm. A God who has not endured death is not truly living. A faith that does not undergo Good Friday cannot attain the fullness of Easter. Crises of faith, both personal and in the histories of culture, are an important part of the history of faith, mm. of our communication with God, who is concealed and returns again to those who do not stop waiting for the unique and eternal word to speak to them once more. Mm. He almost, it seems like, wants to take Nietzsche's proposition up and in the modern period and baptize it in some way and say, like, we ought to expect um, these crises of faith, not just personal, but cultural. And that's not a problem for the church. It's actually a testimony to the God we proclaim. <laughs> well, there's, pro there's probably something in there in terms of also the church has to figure out what it is they actually believe. And they, it can so easily move into civil religion. <laughs> um we see that happening in America, where there's a ton of confusion about these things, right? Uh, that it, it can help the church a little bit to 
be forced to ask some of these questions. What does this mean? What do we actually think? How do we relate to the empire? Um, and suffering often is woven into that. There are different kinds of suffering too. I mean, there's persecution for the sake of the gospel. There's physical suffering. There's um, suffering as part of uh someone abusing you, those kind of things. There's, there, but they, they're all somehow interrelated. Um, but m- maybe I'm missing under, misunderstanding your question. No, 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 I don't think you are. I just, I, it's just, it's, it's interesting. I think that, that, uh, part of, um, I think that the modern challenge to the church maybe is, is an invitation to embrace a kind of weakness that we see mm. God embrace in limitation. And I think that so on some level, I think the kind of cultural disenfranchisement it, it can actually lead to a deepening and enrichment of of the church's understanding and communion with Christ, not a kind of marginalization of it. Yeah, well, uh, one part I, of the quote you read that I that really resonated with me um, as he's talking about this word and waiting for this word. Uh, he almost sounded a little bit like Irenaeus at one point in a way I really like because part of, and Athanasius does this, but this this profound link with created by the word in the beginning, all things, you know, by the word of God. And so how does the God of the good creation redeem and rescue that fallen creation? It's by his word. Um, but also once you make that connection, then the earthiness of the first creation relates to the earthiness of the second. That is, the sun becomes real flesh and blood, and all of that really matters. So the the ministry of the church in the midst of these crises needs to be fairly earthy. The idea of justice, the idea of caring for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the idea of ministering to those in physical need, those aren't just bonus for super Christians. That's essential to the God of creation and recreation. That's the outworking and fundamental uh, call of the gospel. Yeah, it's fun. It's interesting too because you, the last section of the book, you talk about the church um, bearing witness with embodied hope, and and, mm. and you talk about um, faith, hope, and love. And you know, this is in, in another one of his books. Halik is it's a book called um, "Patience with God: The Story of Zacchaeus Continuing Us." And he says mm. that what he finds that fundamentalism and atheism have in common is their impatient forms of faith that can't tolerate mystery. Huh. And he says that's that great. He has this great ellipsis to be in a book by a guy named Adele Bastavro. So I found that mm. was an Egyptian Christian layperson who's a lawyer and the actor. Interesting. Person. But Bastavro says patience with others is love. Mm. Patience with the self is hope, and patience with God is is faith. Mm. And, and I got a sense from your book mm. that your book is a call uh, to for many things. I mean, it, it's 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 a call for people to appreciate complexity and messiness, but also mm. to cultivate patience, uh, patience with one another, patience with, and with God in some sense, right? Yeah. I actually think there is something to that, and patience with themselves, actually. Um, but I, I do think that. I think that um, these kind of things can reveal the difference between the reality of God and our perception of this God, which we classically call idolatry. <laughs> and we, we all have it. And these are times when that gets exposed because even though most of us who, anyone who's listening to this podcast, it, my guess is they, they're, if you say, are we for the health and wealth, name it, claim it gospel, all of us say that's ridiculous, that's an offense. But actually when you dig down, I do think certain things from God should be expected, right? I do have certain expectations and when they're not met, I think, wait, wh- who are you? Are you really the God I imagine? And some of it may be that I've misunderstood God. Some of it, it's just all kinds of things going on there. And, and 
it's uncomfortable to realize how much of our perception of God is actually problematic. And that's very uncomfortable for theologians. I'm one of them because we want to be able to explain things. And I think mystery is our friend rather than our enemy in these things. We, we should shut up a lot more than we do. Yeah, and, and so what does Chesterton say? That, like the, the pre-modern person was smart enough to take two truths in tension <laughs> rather than a yeah. half-truth. It, it, it seems like we're, we're oftentimes as moderns more liable to take a bunch of half-truths. Yeah. Well, Chesterton also has this great quote where he says, you know, the poet is the person who, who just wants to get his head into the heavens. And the logician is the person who wants to get the heavens into his head and yeah. it explodes, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Why aren't more theologians writing books like this? Like a lot, so many academic theologians seem to write books primarily for other academic theologians. <laughs> That's a vulnerable question. I, I, I think, to be honest, I think it's a huge problem. I think it's a historic problem, uh, and it has contributed to the separation of theology from life. Um, I do think there's, there is a place for very full-throttled academic theological reflection. I'm not against that. But to go all the way back to the Reformation, within 100 years of the Reformation, you have this development of a different discipline called ethics and theology. And as soon as you start to separate ethics and theology, and now— in the last couple hundred years, now we separate Old Testament studies, New Testament studies, pastoral care, systematic theology, historical theology. And I can't keep up with my own discipline, much less all the others. I, I, I get that as a problem, but it is a problem because we can undercut what theology is all about in the first place, which is ultimately pastoral. I, I think orthodoxy and pastoral care have to constantly go together. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that one of the things I appreciate about your book so much is I, I look for books like this. I mean, I, mm. I'm kind of like I have. That's encouraging. I, I, I think that this is really important. It's just it's sad that it's not it's not undertaken more. And, and, and again, you're right. It's probably a cultural thing that, that the nature of the academy and church and things like that. But but thank well, you. I mean, it's, it's a, your book is a gift in, in that regard. That I hope more people undertake stuff like this. That's that's very kind of you. I, I you're probably the exact audience. I was actually going for, I just wish there were more in your tribe <laughs> because yeah, I, yeah. I, I do think I, I purposely am writing, this puts it in a negative way, but I'm purposely writing a book that I hope laity will read, but get a little frustrated because they're being stretched uh, intellectually in some other ways. And it's also a book that my academic colleagues, I hope will read and feel like this is a little too personal. Like, why is the writing style this way? Why is he making connections to life? Why does he tell stories? That seems inappropriate. <laughs> so I, it's in that middle space, but that's intentional. Uh, right, because but don't I'm, you think people that are uncomfortable with that are just repressing their own issues? I mean, I, I feel like people that aren't th processing their own theology and their own study in light of, I mean, we are all brokenhearted people. I mean, we are all yeah. wounded. We all, the best of us, I mean, show me a family that's not dysfunctional. I'll show you a family that keeps good secrets. Yeah, we're yeah. always, in, we're, our whole matrix is in, in, it comes from complexity and pain and messiness. So don't you think that like, if people aren't addressing that specifically, maybe they're using their work as a way to suppress it. I mean, well, I do think there's an interesting cycle. I mean, as you know, if you've met many academics, we don't tend to be great relationally and that that's a problem. Right. And uh, we can talk about ideas without having them embodied. So uh, w in my uh, earlier work on John Owen, a, a term I created, which is a terrible term. I just couldn't think of a better one. Hey, but, at least you created it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's called anthroposensitivity. And the idea is people always say, should your theology be God centered, 
theocentric or human-centered, you know, anthropocentric. And I think that's a false dilemma, right? That's a false option. Yes, if you have to choose between those, we should be centered on God. That's our theology. But all good Orthodox theology is constantly sensitive to the human condition. This is Calvin saying knowledge of God, knowledge of self are interrelated. So I, I think that's that's part of what we need to self-consciously say this is legitimate to do. And and it also, though, means I, as a theologian, need to not just listen to fellow theologians. I need to listen to laity. I need to hear their voices and believe the Spirit of God is in them. And they need to be treated not in a condescending way, but as fellow pilgrims who speak into and shape my theology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because uh, Aldous Huxley said what the world needs is more theological psychologists hmm. or, or maybe psychological yeah. theologians. Anyway, what, what, but yeah, I think that that's, if we're not, that's where people live. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do. Yeah, I think and that's what drew me to John Owen. I mean, people have all these perceptions, but the reality is John Owen was doing much of his excellent high-level theology was at the same time early modern psychology. <laughs> and people, when they start to read him, like, how does he know my condition? He was writing 400 years ago. He was a student of the human condition. Yeah, no, and I think, I mean, the best preachers I know are people that think about religious affections, you know, and, yeah. and you know, uh, there's a great, yeah, the Puritan, the Puritans be like Edwards, other, you know, there's a great tradition that, as a theologian, uh, like, uh, who you've written books about modern theology, mapping modern theology. Mm. What do you think is the thing that the church that is in theological reflection is wasting its time on? It's something that's out before it's in. I mean, it's, and what do you think is the thing that in this, in this moment, <laughs> yeah. if the church doesn't pay attention to it, it's really, it could yield real problems and peril. Uh, I'd, I'd have to think about that more. I mean, I, I do think I've learned, I, I'm, I've learned to be very hesitant about trends. Um, I remember, I, I, you know, when I was teaching and um, the emerging church came up and it was huge. I mean, it was everything. And people would always ask me about it. And the truth, I'm like, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> uh, and I know, and I, I went to a conference, heard some people speaking, read a little bit. But the reality is it, it came and went as quick as can be. And I do think we can get so sucked into these things um, where we should be asking, we should constantly be trying to figure out how do we understand orthodoxy and our current condition in our lives? Um, what does it look like to be the church today? And I'm very interested in the local. Um, I, I do think the local is more important than we've tended to realize. We need to recapture the importance of the institutional church. It gets a very bad rap for a lot of good reasons. But I, I, I tell you, there the the local church is crucial, not because she's perfect, but because this is how God works. That the church looks messed up, looks kind of mangled, kind of looks like a dead Jesus on a cross, you know. <laughs> and it's kind of the Augustine thing where, you know, you want to say bad things about the bride of Christ, you know, the you want to say the church is a, a whore, and then you remind, you know, Augustine reminds you, and she's the bride of Christ. Yeah, the, so, the church is a whore. <laughs> she's still my mother. You know, yeah, so yeah, exactly. So, I, I, there, I do think the local church or the actual gathering together of God's people is far more important than we've tended to realize, and I'm obviously since I'm working on it, I'm, I'm, I believe this, but I think. Uh, misunderstanding of finitude, our creatureliness, 
that actually is pretty important for the church too right now. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's one of the things I appreciate about your book, like talking about finitude and, and not, I mean, you talk about the dangers of uh, either suppressing or romanticizing suffering. But right. I, mean, I think, again, you call for sort of an acceptance and a patience. Like, I, I want to read you something that I kept thinking of as I was reading your book. It's by mm. a guy named Frank Lake. He's a, he's a great Christian psychiatrist. He mm. died in the early 80s. But he says that when we regard our humanity as a container, which ought to have something good in it when we look inside, we miss the whole point of the paradox. Mm. We are not meant to be self-contained, but channels of the life and energies of God himself. From this point of view, our wisdom is to let the bottom be knocked out of our humanity, which mm. will ruin it as a container at the same time as it turns it into a satisfactory channel. Yeah. Uh, that resonates with me because I think part of, um, and, and it's some sociologists that have really taught me this or reinforced this, but part of the problem with with modernity is it taught us to think of the self as a self-contained reality. And so you should understand people blame Augustine. They don't read Augustine and you'll even Gunton who I love or love, you know, he's since died, but he just misrepresented Augustine. But anyways, that's really a modernity thing. The self, as if we can understand who we are apart from anyone else, the reality is we need all these others. And even to understand a relationship with God actually God's love is channeled through others to us and through us to others. And so I, I think one of the healthiest things we can do, including with people who suffer, is you actually call them to love. When you, for example, when I, you know, I've dealt with uh, people dealing with suicide and some of those things. And a long story short, I remember dealing with a, a, a person who kept struggling with the darkness. And I'm not saying that this is a prescription for everyone. There were a lot of details in this case I wouldn't tell. But in his case, I said, as you start to feel overwhelmed by it and alone in the darkness, I need you to pick up the phone and call someone that you think is in a bad situation and just go over there. Help them. Whether it's help them work on their apartment or clean their dog or watch a sh stupid show with them. Because what's going to happen is God's love is going to move through you as a channel to them. And as they experience God's love through you, it's like water moving through. You can actually lap it up like a dog. It'll actually feed you as well. But the way, the way you get God's love is not just thinking more about God's love, but by letting God's love move through you to others. And thinking of the self-isolated destroys that. Sorry, that was a long answer, but. Yeah, no, the permeable, realizing you need to have a little bit of a permeable membrane. I mean, mm. like you kind of, yeah, you know, one last thing I wanted to point out that in the book that I think is, it was one of the most helpful uh, points in the book. You talk about deconstructing lament and hope, it, it, like this kind of binary mm. option. They're either lamenting or hoping. And you say, you know, let's look at this as this as more of a an X Y axis. So there's a kind of hope without lament is like naive optimism. No hope and no lament uh, winds up with a detached stoicism. Lament with no hope is sort of unrelenting despair. But you say if you could, if you can make it's like um, it's hundred hundred. If you can have a faith that that is hopeful and lamenting, that that is the crucible, the matrix for faithful suffering. Mm. I, I think that's so helpful uh, mm. because I think you're right. People do play either or off each other, and I think you create a really helpful framework for hope and lament to be at both end, an important part of robust understanding of, of, of Christian experience, just human life. Mm, thanks. Yeah, I, I, and that even gets into how, how does one Christian care for another? And we've got to stop feeling this pressure to tell people everything's okay. 
everything may not be okay. It really isn't, right? Um, one of the things I talk about later, it just as an example of this, is the importance of being a witness. You know, we kind of think of, we use that language for sharing the Christian faith with someone else, but actually. There's a strong Christian tradition, and more recently, the African-American church has been the primary example of this in, in our country that reminds us, you know, in, in an African-American or in a black church and during the service, pastor will say something, will say, you know, he'll say, give me a witness. I need a witness. You know, I need someone to recognize what I'm saying. And he's either testifying to something good about God or he's testifying to some of the real pain he experiences. Mm -hmm. And part of what we do as the church is we give one another a witness. We say, I see that too. It's terrible. Or I see God showing up even in the midst of the hardness. And that keeps us sane. It doesn't change anything, but it helps keep us sane, saying, oh, we can still believe in God. We can trust him in the midst of this hardness. But if we don't get a witness, we continue to spend our energy trying to convince people how bad it is. Kelly, your book is a great witness to a lot of deep and practical theological truths. Thanks for talking with me today. Well, I appreciate it. It's been fun. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email. Or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And definitely check out Kelly's book, Embodied Hope. It is a deep book and a wonderful read. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, fare thee well.